Hello, this is Dr. Marty Lustig, SVP with NextGen Healthcare and a principal with NextGen Advisors. Welcome to our weekly podcast focusing on significant issues in healthcare. The last couple of weeks have been filled with good news regarding vaccines for coronavirus. From a study confirming the safety of the AstraZeneca vaccine and the CDC reporting that the vaccines reduce transmission of the virus and appear to be effective against currently known variants, to Pfizer's announcement that their vaccine is 100% effective in 12 to 15-year-olds. While we should all take a moment to celebrate, we decided to use today's podcast to compare and contrast approaches to the vaccination process itself across several different countries. We'd like to understand why the UK and Israel have been leaders in the drive toward herd immunity, and why other European countries and Canada have lagged behind. As usual, I'm joined by my colleagues today, Graham Brown and Dr. Betty Rabinowitz. Welcome to both of you. Hi, Marty. Hey, Marty. Good to be with you. For this discussion, we have the unique advantage of Betty being from Israel and Graham from Canada, so they each have an unusual level of insight into those countries' healthcare systems. Let's start with Israel. Betty, they seem to have leapt in front of the rest of the world with their vaccination program. What do you see as the key factors in their early success? It's a fascinating uh, case study in some ways. The, The first issue that I think people need to realize is The entire population of Israel is just over 9 million citizens, which means both the population size and the geography are manageable. They compare to, Israel compares in size to the state of Rhode Island and its population to uh, the state of New Jersey. So it gives you a sense of the scale of this uh, challenge they were facing. The second issue is, Healthcare in Israel is provided by four non-for-profit health plans, and all Israeli citizens are insured and covered by those health plans. And there is a very well-established public health infrastructure that has responded to challenges in the past. Child vaccination has very high rates in Israel, so there was machinery to address this. Lastly, Purchasing and acquisition of the vaccine was done by the Israeli government, and the supplies were provided to the four health plans, which meant individual citizens knew exactly who was responsible for vaccinating them, but the health plans weren't required to negotiate individually or or on their own for vaccines. The other thing that happened was Israeli uh, regulations regarding privacy and data sharing are a bit less stringent than HIPAA laws in this country. So one of the agreements, early agreements with Pfizer, all vaccines in Israel have been in the Pfizer vaccine, were done with an agreement with Pfizer that data of this uh, large scale, if you will, experiment will be shared with Pfizer for research purposes. And the Israeli electronic health record infrastructure, which is highly evolved, has been uh, there for many years and probably one of the most evolved in the world, was able to support that kind of data sharing. So 
it was the perfect environment for a large-scale, fast experiment. And we may talk about it a bit uh, further along in the podcast. Israel has plateaued with their vaccinations now, meeting some resistance among parts of the population receiving the vaccine. So whereas they've had fantastic initial results, the levels now have plateaued and they're struggling with some vaccine resistance and other issues, which we may touch on uh, further further on. Interesting. Thank you. You know, it's noteworthy, I think, your comment that not only did they leap ahead for the reasons that you suggest, but they also are providing benefit to the rest of the world by the way they're organized and able to feed and willing to feed their information for research purposes so we can understand better what's going on. Graham, did you have any comments before we move on? Unfortunately, in other developed countries, Canada seems to be somewhat of a laggard in getting their population vaccinated. Grant, what did you see as the main obstacles that they've encountered there? I love the way that Betty just described the kind of perfect situation that Israel is from an experimental perspective, wherein geographically and population-wise very concentrated. And Canada is pretty much the exact inverse of that, right? Canada has, you know, almost a 40 million population, and that population is spread almost entirely about 120 miles from the United States border, but spread across the entire 49th parallel over, you know, 6,000 miles. So it's a really different situation when we just think about where the population lives. At the same time, you know, Canada has some very big cities, and those are the concentrated uh, elements of that population. So Canada's challenges have been different. The vaccine supply is not being made in Canada. It's being sourced from the EU. And the EU has struggled with some of their own um, manufacturing issues and supply issues. All of the Moderna vaccine supply, for example, that's being made in the United States is going to the United States. It's not leaving the U.S. So Canada has some access issues in terms of really getting advanced access to the supply of vaccines. While they did go ahead and purchase a number of vaccine supply chains from all of the different manufacturers, actually getting it into the country has been their biggest biggest problem so far. As a result, they haven't been able to do kind of the advanced distribution and rollout planning that we've seen in the United Kingdom, where they know the number of doses that are going to be coming in on a regular basis and can work with the provinces to then set up the distribution plans and prioritize people. And the other aspect of Canada being so spread out, you've got the federal government that's doing the purchasing. They're then working with the provinces and territories. So you've got 13 different governmental bodies that are taking that vaccine supply and working with their regional health authorities. So each province has multiple regional health authorities that are the ones that are actually doing the distribution. So it becomes fairly diffuse from the national level down to the actual putting it into a person's arm. There's a lot of different organizations that get get involved into the mix of the actual distribution. So those are some of the, the, the big challenges that I think uh, we're seeing in Canada. And uh, unfortunately, that's, that's really had a, a big impact on their ability. They're several weeks behind uh, what we would see happening in the United States right now, and certainly a month or more behind Israel. Yeah, it does raise this, I think, important issue of you know, those countries that happen to have the manufacturing or have the means that supply, getting the supply in the first place, you know, 
without that, it doesn't matter how well organized you are. And you know, when we look across what the world's needs are going to be, I think that's going to be an important issue of how do we get the supplies where they need to be in an equitable way. So let's uh, turn to Europe. And we see this striking difference between England's success, which you alluded to, Graham, and most of the rest of continental Europe, which seems to be struggling to ramp up their, their programs. Betty, what do you see as the issues that drive those differences? I, it's interesting. I, I was surpri- I've been surprised by Europe's struggles around this. It's, the geography and kind of size is, is manageable in many of these European countries. I think the biggest issue there has been a failure to secure a supply, apparently, Governments in many of the Eastern European countries and other European countries have weren't fast off the mark to negotiate purchasing of vaccine. I'm not sure if this was a cost issue, a budgetary issue, a lack of foresight or, or planning. So supplies have been low. There was also the hiccup that happened around the AstraZeneca a vaccine with some uh, side effects early on that uh, required governments to stop vaccination projects while uh, there was investigation whether the cavernous sinus thrombosis that they were uh, seeing in, in younger patients being vaccinated was of, of uh, substance and needed to change. So I think there have been several setbacks that they had to deal with, including, but mainly, uh, the issue of supply. And some of the health systems may not have had the public health fabric to use in order to uh, supply the vaccines. So here are wealthy Western countries who are lagging behind quite significantly and are seeing quite uh, serious outbreaks at the moment. Look at Italy, look at uh, Poland, look uh, really struggling significantly with France with another shutdown just in the last uh, week or so. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly to me, Germany. Graham, your thoughts on Europe? Well, I think I think just to build on one of Betty's points, the my understanding is really the decision-making on the purchase of vaccines was being done at the EU block level. And as a group of nations, they sought to negotiate the price with vaccine manufacturers, which put them basically behind in line, behind the United States and other jurisdictions like the UK that were willing to pay full price. And so they ended up as a, as a group making a large purchase, but they're behind in line, other nations. And so supply is going to be limited to them, even though it's being manufactured in some of the EU nation member states. So there's that supply issue at the higher level and kind of getting further behind in line. At the same time, there, you know, there's some data showing that up to 40% of doses procured by the EU and distributed to their member states have been languishing in storage, partly due to just poor logistics at the EU block member level being coordinated. You know, there's certain aspects of administration that the EU block is not set up to take care of very effectively. And public health is one of them. It was never designed in that manner. It's really an individual country specific responsibility. And so you get into a situation where, um, you know, the New York Times is reporting that there's a lot of vaccine that's out there and available. It's just not getting into people's arms because of that disconnect at the local level. 
It's interesting you talked about it with Canada, and I'm sure we'll talk about it with the U.S. also, this interplay between a federal role that in the EU is the EU, and then the, whether it's provincial state or in Europe, the individual countries, and the disconnect between those in terms of their public health infrastructures and how that plays roles. It's interesting. Well, you know, Marty, just to that point, I mean, the, while the U.S. is ahead of all of this, we've, we've experienced the same challenges, right, where we've got the federal government procuring vaccine doses and working with the states on a population basis and a risk basis to provide supply. But then from there, it's this mix of uh, state-based resources, sometimes federally run distribution centers, allocation of uh, vaccine directly to federally qualified health centers, community health centers, but also to local community clinics, to hospitals, and to pharmacies that are all involved in the distribution. So the U.S. has a much more multi-pronged approach, which at the end of the day has, you know, I think seeped into the communities in a more effective way. We've, we've tried every strategy to try and get vaccine directly to people here. And I think, you know, some strategies work better than others, but trying multiple of them was successful at the end of the day. So that kind of brings me to the uh, what I wanted to get us to next is talking about as we look at lessons learned from these other countries when we look at the U.S. What do we sort of see as the best and worst of the vaccine rollout? And I hear you that sort of this multi-layered strategy of supply has a positive side to it. If you look back at the entire picture, do you have sort of a sense of best and worst things that we've done? You know, I think the U.S. was really smart last year with its purchasing power to be very transparent up front that it was going to partner with, with vaccine developers and invest in the research process and secure doses as a result of that. They, they were pretty transparent right up front that we we're going to ramp this up and do it quickly. And, you know, kudos to the feds for really putting a lot of focus on this. That really got the the issue of development rapidly addressed and got a vaccine supply to market faster than we've ever seen before. So I think that level of research and collaboration uh, that happened globally in the U.S. was a real leader in that. Some of the challenges that have still happened, though, it's still state by state. Um, we still have the lifting of social interventions in different states sooner than really, you know, the epidemic curve would suggest is appropriate. And so that's happening with a round of, you know, we've got this rapid vaccination, but we also have a rapid rise in cases in certain jurisdictions and ones that are caused by variants that are more problematic and that are uh, more contagious than we've seen before. So I think those are some of the challenges we're still facing. The, the other area that, you know, I think we could have perhaps acted on sooner rather than how it's been acted on the last month is invoking some of the ability for the Defense Production Act and to have pharmaceutical manufacturers that have traditionally been competitors collaborate on expanding supply and the manufacturing of uh, doses. You know, patent rights are tied into that. So there's some, some business level approaches in the United States that I think, you know, the US business model of healthcare has driven how we've approached the solution that in a different jurisdiction, it might've been different. Yeah, it's interesting. Graham mentioned the multi-pronged approach in the U.S. I, I just want to point out that that had some detrimental effects as well. It's made individuals trying to get vaccine. It, it 
uh, it created these absurd situations with people logging on to multiple websites with different timelines, different requirements, state requirements, even in within the state, different counties applied different rules, and it really created a cacophony of uh, regulations that the uh, took, I think, cost us a couple of months in terms of the ramp up because now that we figured it out, look at the we we vaccinated four million people on on over the weekend in in a single day. Yet the initial uh, uh, phase took uh, was very slow and very laborious. So I think that having a central entity that governed the process as well as allowed a portal for patients to log on to in one location would have been at least state by state or nationally uh, a good idea. And, you know, I, I love retouching on the issues around how little data we're going to have from this experiment. We don't have a central repository for this. We don't have a a unique patient identifier that would allow us to monitor side effects on lar at large scale. We've been really deprived of a lot of wisdom for the next epidemic because of the uh, disparity of our databases and the fact that they don't communicate easily and we have no ability to identify patients uniquely. We we're going to have to do something about this to prepare better for the next pandemic. Yeah, good, really good points. You know, on your point about the sort of variation in recommendations and confusion about how to get registered and stuff, I think that, that multi-layered variable communication has contributed to some vaccine resistance as well. Yet another problem that we have a lot of work to do, particularly in this country, to, to overcome. The Last thing I'd like to do is to go back to the good news that we started this podcast with. So, you know, based on all what we've been learning, it looks hopeful that sometime later this year, hopefully by fall, we will really be approaching herd immunity with a majority of both children and adults vaccinated. So assuming that means that we've derived at our new normal, what do each of you think about how our lives are going to be different than they were before the pandemic at this point? Graham, you want to go first? And we'll give Betty the last word. Sure. I think there'll be an ongoing need for testing and tracing, certainly at colleges and schools and workplaces for a period of time. You know, as we herd immunity, we're never going to really know when we get there. It's not like some light switch is going to go off and all of a sudden everyone's aware like, okay, we're good. We don't have to worry about this anymore. It's really a statistical calculation and there's been a lot of uh, pushback around whether we've met a certain marker or another in the past year around COVID. So I don't think herd immunity is going to be treated any differently. As a result of that, being able to demonstrate that you've been vaccinated that you've received a negative test in the last few hours is probably going to be a rite of passage into certain kinds of environments, group facilities, concert venues, whatever that might be, going back to college, going back to school. So I think there is some level that there is a new normal here around awareness of COVID and your status with COVID that's going to be a part of our ongoing lexicon for certainly the year ahead. That speaks to continued work from home. And I think for, for many folks, you know, I don't, I don't know that the anxiety 
and the stress or the concerns that have come from the pandemic are going to be easily forgotten. So I don't know what the ramifications of that necessarily are, but this has been a pretty impactful event globally. And I think that's going to sit with us for a period here. Um, you know, 2020 was a pretty exceptional year for everyone. We'll see how that plays out in the future. It, on the one hand, I'm struck by how resilient humans are and this incredible pent up demand for going back to the way things were. So uh, Texas allowed baseball uh, opening day to have fans in the in the stands and they found 87,000 or how many people who were willing to uh, come with or without masks. So on the one hand, there will be a return to a normalcy. On the other hand, I think the virus is going to continue to challenge our assumptions about returning uh, to, to the way things were prior. I think globally, there are going to be countries that are going to struggle more than others and travelers from those countries are going to pose a risk with variants and, and uh, viruses that will challenge the vaccines. I think it remains to be seen whether we will need repeated vaccines and adjusted vaccines to the variants that are common uh, and, on, and on what cadence uh, that will happen. I feel from a business perspective, there have been fundamental changes in the way business is conducted. Travel, business travel may not return to where it was. Certainly business real estate is in flux and changing. Some of the business hubs are losing population and, and real estate prices there are, are going down. There's just interesting things happening on the West Coast and, and in New York City in terms of availability of business real estate. It, it's, it's, it's really evolving uh, very quickly in certain ways we'll return to where we were, we were, and in other ways we'll never be the same. Well, on that note, thank you. It sounds like you're both saying that uh, we can't go back, we have to go forward. And on that note, I'd like to thank both of you, Dr. Betty Rabinowitz and Graham Brown for joining me today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Don't forget that you can prescribe to our podcast. And if you do, you'll get a weekly reminder of each new episode. This is Dr. Marty Lustig with NextGen Healthcare. Thanks and have a great day.